Turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 14. We find ourselves in the practical part of the book of Romans, as it's called, spending about three months in chapters 12 and 13 looking at the Christian life. How is it that those who are born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been justified, having peace with God, finding that reconciliation through the blood of his cross, how then are we to live the rest of the time that we have in the flesh? And so that's what Romans 12 and 13 were all about, giving some wonderful general instruction that would be applicable to all churches in all times and places. Now, when we come to Romans chapter 14 and the beginning of Romans chapter 15, Paul is going to address some subjects that were particular to the church at Rome, specific issues that they were dealing with, although certainly not unique to the church at Rome. While this is something that's going on in this church, it was also probably going on in other churches. Paul, writing to the church at Rome from Corinth, he writes on a similar subject that he also addressed at the Corinthian church in his letters there. Now, this morning, as we come to Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, you're going to see that we have a very positive tone, a very encouraging message from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be talking about welcoming one another, about being welcomed by God. He's going to be not passing judgment, about how the Lord is able to make us stand, how Christians live and die for the Lord and honor Him in all of our actions. He's going to be talking about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and mutual upbuilding. So the the terminology, the tone here is all very positive and encouraging. And so this is good for us to be able to see all sides of the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. There's a number of passages as you study through Paul's letters that are quite acerbic. That is that they are highly critical and pointing out what the church is, is doing wrong and, and having kind of that fighting for the truth type of emphasis. But this morning... Our focus is going to be on unity. Unity, unity, unity. And for churches, it seems like we have a hard time finding the proper balance between fighting for the truth, rebuking error, and fighting for unity, staying together in one heart and one mind. And there often is pictured the Christian church as trying to find this balance between the tension of pursuing truth and pursuing unity. And so some churches might focus on the unity. Some churches might focus on the truth and the things that go along with that. But the Bible has the proper balance for us. And we're not going to be seeking a balance this morning. This morning we're just going to be focusing on what Paul focuses on. And so it'll be other messages where I focus on the divisions that are necessary and the discernment that is necessary. But this morning I'm going to be focusing on the unity that is necessary. Now Romans 14, I've told you before, is a passage that could be preached annually in most churches and it would be quite profitable. There's so much in God's Word to preach, so many chapters, so much material. You can't preach everything every year. We just don't have that amount of time in the pulpit. But if there was a passage that I might put in the annual calendar for preaching every year, Romans 14 would definitely be in the running. The last time I preached Romans 14 was in April of 2020. So it's been just a little over two years since I shared this message with you. So let's go ahead and read the passage. 
Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, you follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud for the congregation. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's our text for this morning. The very first verse introduces the principle of unity with the words, the command, welcome him. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Now, we do a whole study on what Paul means when he describes a Christian as weak in faith, but first let's focus on the command to welcome him. He doesn't say welcome the one who is of a different faith. He doesn't say welcome the one who has no faith. He says welcome the one who is weak in faith. And so what we have to recognize as Christians is that when we are born again, we are born again as babes, our faith is small and weak. When the Lord Jesus Christ was with his disciples on the earth, he was constantly noticing and making note of the smallness of their faith. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ taught them, as he gave grace to them, as he ascended to heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit, the faith of those disciples grew and grew and grew. And so we have to recognize that in the church, we have to have proper expectations of one another. There are going to be those who are strong in the faith, who are established, who have walked with the Lord and grown in their knowledge of God's word and their practice of it. But there's going to be others who are immature in the faith, who are weak. And the purpose of welcoming the weak into our church is not so that we can argue with them and get them to believe and agree with us on everything that we think is the right way to do things. But Paul commands us to welcome the weak in faith into our congregation, into our church, into our homes, into our fellowship, not for the purpose of a debate. Okay, there's a time that we give to people to grow. When somebody comes into the door of this church and they don't understand all of the doctrine in our doctrinal statement and they don't dress like we dress or talk like we talk and they're coming from a different background, 
We don't automatically enter into straightening them out on everything. That's not the purpose for welcoming them. But if somebody comes into this church and, and they're a believer, and they have some different opinions, they have some different ideas, they come from a different background, we welcome them in the Lord. That's the key. If you go into another church where things are done differently, where different opinions are held, where some of the issues that are debated and discussed among Christianity are on the other side of the issue, do you want to be accosted right away with all of those issues? Do you want to have announced to the church, well, Timothy doesn't agree with the church on this, 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 and this, and so everybody gather around Timothy and straighten him out. No, that's not how you want to be greeted in a church. You want people to recognize that you have the same faith, the same Lord, the same love, and that there's a unity that binds us together that is more foundational and more important than some of these differences that we could divide over or discuss and debate. A few years ago, our church was in a discussion and a debate with some of the leadership of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and we invited the superintendent of the Midwest District to come and talk with us about those issues. And I was hoping that when the superintendent came to our church, he would sense that we had a welcoming spirit. That yes, he was coming to discuss and debate the state and direction of the EFCA with our elders and our leadership in front of the congregation, but that deeper than the debate, deeper than this discussion, was our mutual love for one another. And I think he did walk away with that feeling, with that idea. And so I commend you on being that kind of congregation. But I want to encourage you to keep on doing that, to make sure that you don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, well, we're right on everything, and the most important thing for us to do is to straighten out everyone else. That's important. It's good to be right. It's good to help other people grow in their faith and come to the right understanding of important issues, divisive issues. But you have to let people know that the most important thing is their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we embrace one another as brothers, whether they agree with us on all of those things or not, or whether they're ready to move into the convictions and, and the opinions that we ourselves have. All right? So this is a passage about the unity of the body of Christ. We're going to be emphasizing that. Paul introduces that right at the beginning with that command to welcome the one who is weak in faith and to be careful how you welcome him. You're not welcoming him just as an opportunity to sharpen your debate skills and show how right you are. That's not the purpose of welcoming the one who is weak in faith. Now, let's go on to verse 2. The weak in faith, how does it manifest itself? What is the issue that's going on in the church at Rome and other churches at this time. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So, Paul identifies that Christians have different convictions about what is right and good for them to eat in the first century church in Rome. This is an issue that comes up in other letters as well. Paul writes about it in his letter to the Corinthians. It comes up in the Jerusalem Council and is part of their letter in Acts chapter 15. It's also an issue in Revelation 2 and 3 with the letters of the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So this is an issue that was happening in Rome, but it was also happening in other places. And it's really an issue between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, it's not hard and fast along those lines, but those are the general camps that were falling on different sides of this issue. Why? Why was this an issue in the early church? 
The Jewish Christians have come to faith in Christ, and you can read in the book of Acts about how they had to grow in their understanding and knowledge of what exactly had changed from the old covenant into the new covenant. It wasn't right away that the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ understood the massive ramifications of going from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. It took some time. You remember how in the book of Acts, Peter, one of the early church leaders, was praying on the rooftop of the house he was staying in. And God, to make this point to him, to open up the door of his mind, gave him a vision of unclean animals coming down out of heaven on a tablecloth. And he told him, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I've never eaten any unclean food in my life because this was a, a scrupulous Jewish man who for all of his life had lived under the law of Moses and the law of Moses had given very specific clear commands on what was clean food and what was unclean food. Now you, having not grown up in such a culture and not having a lot of Jewish people around you, you don't think a lot about kosher foods and unkosher foods and, and all of that. But that was huge to a Jewish person in the first century, even as it's still important to Jewish people today who think that they're under the law of Moses. And so God was revealing, even during the lifetime of the ministry of Jesus, that he was declaring all foods to be clean. We have that quote from the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels that he declared all foods to be clean. But it took time for people to figure out exactly what that meant. And so in the first century church, you've got all these Jewish believers who've come to Christ. They know that he is the Messiah. They've seen him resurrected and they've heard the testimony of the apostles and they're following his teaching. But yet, their conscience is still bound to the law of Moses, like Peter's was, and he doesn't want to eat any unclean foods. Now, we had our scripture reading today in Daniel chapter 1 for a reason that Daniel was a scrupulous Jewish man who was pulled out of his Jewish context, his own nation of Israel, where everyone was very careful to keep the dietary laws of the people and the traditions that had been handed down, and he was carried off into Babylon where they did not have any such laws or any such considerations. And so Daniel and his friends decided that they were not going to defile themselves with any of the food of the Babylonians with their meat and their wine. It specifically mentioned the meat and the wine there in Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to see that's what Paul is bringing up here in Romans chapter 14. So these Jewish Christians still, living not in Jerusalem, but living in Rome, their conscience bothers them if they eat the defiled food of the pagans that has not been sacrificed in the right way, it hasn't had all the blood drained out the way that the Jewish butchers would do it, and not only the meat, but also the wine, and all of the kosher rules that were binding the conscience of the Jewish person, they're saying, you know, this is God's law, this is God's commandment, this is our tradition, I can't eat these things with a clear conscience. And so the Gentiles, who had never been under these rules, they were quick to latch on to the Lord's teachings that all foods were now declared clean. The Apostle Paul had an early understanding of this, and so in all the churches that he planted and he taught, he showed them that they were not under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. But for a lot of Christians that either didn't understand what Paul was teaching or weren't ready to accept that yet, there was still this division over this issue. In fact, come with me to the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter 15 together. So here in the middle of the divine history of the early church, 
There is the first church council in all of church history called in Jerusalem. This is before the destruction of Jerusalem. This is before the disciples were scattered from that place. And so Jerusalem being where the first church was, where most of the apostles were still residing, when an issue came up among the churches as to what is required of Gentiles to be followers of Jesus Christ, they called together Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, others who were disputing this issue, to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem to discuss it. All right? So I want to read a large section here of Acts chapter 15. Start with me in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So this is Paul's missionary journey. And so some brothers from Judea come and teach other Christians. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here, this is not just a conscience issue, but they're making it a salvation issue. This is not just, you know, what's the right way to walk and please God. This is how does somebody given their sins and justified, which is a whole other bag of beans, right? And so in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, so in Romans, Paul says, you know, if you've got your personal conviction that you don't want to eat this food, then that's fine. If you've got your personal conviction that you can eat this food, that's the right position, that you're strong in faith, this person is weak in faith, but we should welcome one another and, and not judge one another harshly. But if somebody comes along and says, well, unless you do this, you're not saved, well, then that's not something we can just agree to disagree about because the gospel is the foundation of everything and we don't welcome those who are preaching a different gospel, right? So that's the difference here. But notice how it's still revolving around a similar issue of our relationship to the Mosaic law. Unless you keep the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So Luke is making it clear here that the gospel of the apostle Paul was rejoiced in by all of the Jewish churches that were started by these other apostles. And so they were bringing great joy. In verse 4, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed, and they declared all that God had done with them. But, verse 5, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we've got some Jewish believers who were former Pharisees and they believe in Jesus Christ. But they think that for the Gentiles to be saved, they've got to become Jewish and obey the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they actually had to have discussion and debate. It wasn't like everyone just said, that's ridiculous, get these guys out of here. Uh, no, there was a lot of people that were like, well, maybe they got a point here, we've got to listen to this. So they get together and there's much debate. And then Peter stands up and said to the others, Brothers, you know, and here's referring back to what I just referred to a little while ago about the vision from heaven, where God showed him that he was declaring all foods clean. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. After receiving that vision, God sent him to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. So this was not just about food, but it was about the gospel going to the Gentiles. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. All right, good job. Wait, Peter is there for us. It's important, you know, that that godly men stand up and speak the truth in situations like this. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, that's Peter, how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, and James is a pillar in the church, so his judgment is pretty important, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, that would be meat that is strangled to death, not drained the way that the Jews would prepare it, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James, he makes it clear that when it comes to the gospel, the Gentiles are saved the same way that Jewish people are saved, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, he says, you know, we do want to respect this Jewish element and their scruples in the church, and so we're going to tell the Gentiles to be careful about what they eat, the foods that they eat. We don't want them offending their Jewish brothers who don't want to eat this meat that's been strangled or has blood in it. And so this is still an issue years later when Paul is writing to the Roman church. You can read the letter that the council sends out to the Gentile believers there at the following verses in Acts chapter 15, but we've got to keep it moving this morning. Because this issue of food sacrifice to idols, whether or not there's the kosher preparation of the food and the wine and all of that, it's not really that relevant to us today. There's not a lot of Jews in our church who are keeping kosher laws and we Gentiles have to try to figure out, well, how do we carry out our potluck in a way that the Jews and the Gentile Christians both can eat together and and not feel like we're uh, offending one another? That's not a huge issue that we're facing. But the principles of unity that apply to this issue apply to myriad issues among Christians. That there's all kinds of ways that we have different convictions about different things on how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to please God. And so the same principles that guided the Jews and the Gentiles in the church at Rome in the first century are the same principles that guide us through all of the differences of opinion that we're going to have amongst ourselves. The command is, welcome one another, not for the purpose of quarreling. There is a time and a place for debates. There is a time and a place for discussion. But the welcome that we have, the unity that we have in the Lord, comes first. It always comes first. Now, 
I want you to also look at Galatians chapter 2 with me. Turn from where we were in Acts over to Paul's letter to the Galatians. There is one other important piece of context here that I want to make clear before we get into the principles of unity. We're talking about the disputed matters in the early church and that Peter, he said the right thing, came down with a great opinion there in Acts chapter 15 together with Paul and James. But that doesn't mean that there weren't still some problems to be worked out practically because as Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, they're facing much this same type of issue. There's again teachers who have come from Judea who are teaching the churches in Galatia that unless they're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, that they can't be saved. And so Paul writes this letter to the churches of Galatia to basically reiterate the decision of the council in Jerusalem that you don't trouble the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ by trying to put the yoke of the law upon them or requiring circumcision for assurance of salvation. So that's really the main idea here. And Paul, in the opening chapters, rehearses some of his personal history with this issue. And I want you to pick it up there in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, Paul opposes Peter. That's the title of this paragraph in the ESV. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. All right, so there is a time for opposing people to their face. There is a time for pointing out when people are doing what's wrong. This is one of those times. Now, how is this different from what Paul is writing in Romans 14? Why isn't he encouraging the Roman church to oppose the weak Christians to their face? All right, we'll talk about that. Let's uh, see what Paul is doing here first. Paul is opposing Peter to his face. Why? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, uh-oh, men from James, uh stirring up some trouble here. He was eating with the Gentiles. Don't trouble them. But remember what James had wrote? That you're supposed to abstain from things strangled and from blood. And now here these Jews in, in Galatia might not be doing that. And so certain men come from James and, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter cuts off fellowship from those who are not eating according to Jewish scruples. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, cutting off fellowship from those on the other side of this issue. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And he goes on and can read the justification by faith and not by works and all that Paul said to Peter. The point here is, Paul is not rebuking Peter for following Jewish scruples and refraining from eating certain things. He's rebuking Peter for not welcoming the person who doesn't follow those scruples. So he's perfectly in line with what he writes in Romans 14 because the command in Romans 14 is welcome one another. And here, Peter and Barnabas even are not welcoming those who have a different conscience on this issue. So if somebody wants to split the church over a conscience issue, that's when you have to rebuke them. That's when you have to say, no, the church is united. I'm not going to let you divide the church over this issue. But if people are just following their own conscience and they're not telling other people what they have to do in order to have fellowship with them, you don't rebuke them to their face. 
Paul wasn't going to go to Peter and say, you have to eat food that is strangled or that has blood in it. He wasn't going to tell him that. He was going to tell him, you have to have fellowship with those who eat these things. Because if you don't have fellowship with those whom God has welcomed, then you are not being straightforward with the truth of the gospel. If somebody comes into this church who is a born-again Christian, who has different convictions on certain doctrines and practices, and you don't welcome him because of those doctrines and practices, you are not being straightforward with the truth of the gospel. You're more zealous for your belief and your conviction and your practice than you are for the gospel. And that's not right. There's a lot of issues that are important. And it's important that we go from weak faith to strong faith. But you have to be able to weigh the relative importance of different things. And the truth of the gospel is the most important truth. And so don't sacrifice the clarity of the gospel for the sake of some other issue that is not of primary importance. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans, and it's the same thing he's getting at in Galatians. These are not contrasting passages, they're contrasting situations. And he's using the same principles to guide himself through both of those situations. Principles of unity. It was the sin against unity that Paul was confronting Peter about. It was his love for the unity of the church that caused him to oppose Peter to his face. Come back to Romans chapter 14. Now, I've got the first point on the outline here is principles of unity. So let's look in the chapter, what are those principles of unity? Come back to Romans chapter 14, look at verse 3. Romans 14.3 says this, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who gets to decide who is welcome in this church? Do I get to decide? The elders get to decide? Do you get to decide? God gets to decide who is welcome in this church. And who does God say is welcome in this church? His son, his daughter. Whether they're strong in the faith or weak in the faith, if he is a son of God, if she is a daughter of God, we welcome God's children into God's family. Amen? Now, you need to have discernment. You need to be able to know who is a son or a daughter of God. And that's what Paul was so concerned about, is that the truth of the gospel is clear, because the gospel is how somebody becomes a son or a daughter of God. So if somebody comes in who is preaching a different gospel, do we have to welcome them? No. The Bible says just the opposite. You don't welcome them. You reject them. You put a false teacher out of the church. But... For everyone who believes in Jesus Christ according to the scriptures, this is their home. This week I was talking with one of the ladies that's part of the homeschool co-op that meets here, and she said, you know, I read your doctrinal statement for the church. I thought it would be a good idea to know what the doctrine is of the church that we're meeting at for our homeschool co-op. And so I commended her for that. And I wanted to point out and make clear that some churches have a doctrinal statement that is just about the issues that are necessary for salvation. That the doctrinal statement is only about the gospel and what you need to believe in order to, to be a member of the body of Christ. 
And I said, well, I can understand that, and that's a good way to approach a doctrinal statement, but our doctrinal statement has a little different purpose. It's designed to give Christians an understanding of what our church believes and teaches on a lot of the issues that do divide Christians. And so, for someone who comes to this church and reads our doctrinal statement, they don't have to agree with everything that's in the doctrinal statement. They don't have to understand everything that's in the doctrinal statement. We just put that doctrinal statement there so anybody who is aware of the issues that are dividing churches on which there are different opinions, they'll know what we believe on that. So it's a statement of, of what we believe and what we teach, not just regarding what is necessary for salvation, but just in general of, of what makes for a good, healthy church. And so it's good for a church to take a position It's good for a church to emphasize doctrine. It's good for a church to be clear on what their doctrinal stance is, but it's also good for a church to welcome believers who don't yet understand everything the way that we are teaching it, right? We don't want just people who agree with us to come to this church. How is that going to help the body of Christ if only people who already agree with us are welcome here? We want people coming to this church who are immature in their faith, people who haven't thought through certain issues, people who are young in the faith, people who need to grow, and and we want to feed them the Word of God with patience and with humility, not expecting them to know everything and agree with everything, but expecting them to have questions, expecting them to have differences of opinion, and bearing with one another and being patient and being humble. That's what the body of Christ, family of God is. That's how we find unity, not by demanding that everyone agree with us instantly, That's no pathway to unity. That's the pathway to division, demanding that everyone agree with us instantly. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be patient with all, able to teach. If you can't be patient and able to teach, then you need to shut your mouth. How do we know whom God welcomes and whom God accepts? Well, that's why we have our cooperation and separation statement. Eleven years ago, our church published our statement on cooperation and separation, which makes it clear who is welcome and who is not welcome, who we partner with in ministry and who we don't partner with in ministry. So if you have questions, well, the Bible has answers, and we've done our best to put those Bible answers into a statement, and you can pick up a copy of the cooperation and separation statement in the sound room by the mailboxes. We keep all of our church documents. And if you want to talk with me about that and why this and why that and are we interpreting this correctly, I'm always open to talk about any doctrine, especially this very important one of cooperation and separation. But once we know that God has accepted somebody, then we recognize this is God's house and we welcome into God's house the one who is welcomed by God. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. The second principle of unity that I want you to focus on here in this passage is in verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So, as long as we keep in mind who we are and who God is, we won't have a lot of problems. God is the owner of this house. He's the owner of this church. He decides who's welcome here. And God is the judge of everyone who comes here. You don't have to please me. You don't have to please other people. Your job is to please God. Your job is to recognize that God is going to judge you and God is going to judge the other people. That doesn't mean we can't help one another. It doesn't mean we can't talk to one another, encourage one another. can't say, well, have you thought about this? 
Is this the right way to glorify God or would this be a better way of glorifying God? Of course we want to do that type of thing. But I'm not the final word. The elders aren't the final word. You're not the final word. God has the final word. And so we talk about it, we discuss it, we pray with humility, recognizing that God knows things that we don't know. God sees things that we don't see. God judges the heart. He sees to the very motive of every single one of us. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of the judge. Are all things open and bare to your eyes? Do you see everything in me? Do I see everything in you? Remember who you are and remember who God is and that's going to keep us united. God is the one who decides who comes in and God is the one who decides who is rewarded. And he can handle it. God can handle that job of deciding who is welcome into his family and how he's going to judge his family members. So you leave to God the things that are God's, do the things that God tells you to do, and it'll be fine. Stop worrying so much. Stop trying to do God's job for him. Oh, I don't know if God's going to do a good job here. I, you know, he's, he's way off in heaven and I'm right here, so I think I have to do God's job. God will do his job at exactly the right time. There's a passage in Corinthians that I think is, is really powerful here. Come with me to uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a great passage on how we're supposed to treat one another and how we're not supposed to judge one another. Now, Paul was a preacher. Paul was a pastor. And so people love to judge pastors. It's like quarterbacks and coaches. Everybody's a critic. Everybody knows better than the quarterback and the coach, right? And so Paul got plenty of criticism. And that's fine. You know, you guys can criticize all you want. I don't mind. But I kind of have the spirit of Paul here. And let's go ahead and read what Paul thinks about being criticized as a pastor. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how someone should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I'm nothing more than a servant in God's household. I'm nothing more than a steward. This isn't my church. This is his church. So I'm going to stand before him and give an account for my stewardship. I don't have to answer to you. I have to answer to God. Now, in some sense, I answer to you. You can fire me. That's fine. You should have that power. But you'll have to answer to God for who you fire and who you hire. See, we all have a master. We are stewards of his things. Moreover, verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. A Christian comes in and he's judged by us. Who cares? What matters is what the Lord thinks about him. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. We don't even judge ourselves. A man like Socrates... He didn't care what other people thought of him. All he cared about was, did I do the right thing? Did I keep a clear conscience? And he was willing to die for doing the right thing and keeping a clear conscience. And know oh, that we had more people like that in our culture. But that's not good enough. Acquitting yourself is a small thing in comparison to being acquitted by God. Keeping a clear conscience, feeling good about what you've done, that you haven't been coerced by forces on the outside, you haven't been ruled by evil passions on the inside, that's good. That's very good. But even better is when the Lord God judges you and finds that you are acquitted, that you are righteous, that you are innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, Paul says. 
So when the, the liberal says, don't judge me, who are you to judge? He's got a point. Who are you to judge? It is the Lord who judges. Verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Oh, that guy's a great preacher. Oh, that guy's a terrible preacher. Well, you know, the Lord will decide. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Some people, they look so good for so long. And then something comes along and you see them go a certain direction. You're like, wait, wait a second, what happened? It's hard to tell sometimes whether someone really loves the Lord or whether the path for their greatest progress just happens to be doing the right thing. I think there's a lot of Christians whose path to you know, fame and money and respect and all of that, preach the word. Because that's what the people want. That's what the people expect. If I came here on a Sunday morning and started preaching heresy, I'd be out of a job. So it's in my best interest to preach the word. How do you know if I'm preaching the word to keep my job or if I'm preaching the word because I really love Jesus Christ? You don't. God does. So don't go on passing judgment before the time. God is going to reveal the secret things hidden in the darkness and then, then, each one will receive his commendation from God. Don't live for the approval of the church. Live for the approval of Jesus Christ. He's coming. You will stand before him. You will give an account. This is a principle of unity. When we all live this way, it unites us. All right, come back to Romans. A couple more principles of unity here. Look at verses 6 through 9 in Romans 14. Here you've got the person observing a day or not observing a day. This is, again, a Jewish-Gentile issue. The Jews had certain holy days. They still wanted to observe them as Christians. And this was a divisive issue between these two groups. But notice how Paul frames it. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. His heart is in the right place. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Look at the motive of the heart. That's how God judges. The person who is weak in faith who still thinks, you know, I need to observe this holy day, I need to not eat this food, why is he doing that? He's doing it because he believes it's the right way to honor his Lord. And how does the Lord feel about that? The Lord says, great, good, thank you for doing what you think I would want you to do. And I'm going to teach that person. I'm going to grow that person. He's going to come to understand what I want him to do, but at least he's doing what he's doing because he loves me. Are you judging him harshly because you love Jesus? Or because you're prideful? You see, it's more important to love someone than it is to be right. And here, the person who is wrong on the issue, he's weak in faith. Paul makes it clear there is a right position, there is a wrong position. That's why I don't like to talk about these things as gray areas. Like, well, who knows what's right and what's wrong? Nobody can know. That's not the Bible position. The Bible says there is a right, there is a wrong. Not everybody's gotten to the right position yet. And so we're patient and we're loving and we look at the heart. And if the heart of the person is, I'm trying to honor the Lord Jesus Christ the best that I can, then great. Stop judging that. That's good. 
So the, the principle here is love believes the best about people. Somebody has a different opinion, a different practice, a different belief, a different doctrine. Do you automatically assume that that person loves the Lord much less than you? There's a people out there who love the Lord Jesus Christ a lot better than we do, and they don't know the Bible half as well as we do. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love believes the best about the motives of others. If you examine other people and you say, oh, I think they've got a wrong motive. I found it. There's a wrong motive. That's how you're going to be judged. God is going to find every wrong motive that you had and he's going to use that to disqualify all the good works that you've done and you're going to have no reward in heaven because you judged other people by nullifying everything they did by finding some wrong motive. You think you're without wrong motives? If you believe the best about other people, then God is going to be gracious to you in the judgment. If you are gracious to others, God will be gracious to you. But if you're a nitpicker, God's going to nitpick you. And he'll find plenty to nitpick. Love believes the best. That's number three. And then number four, verse four, you've got to trust in God's power to sanctify the saints. Do you trust in God's power to work in people's lives? Verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. The servant of another here is a special word that Paul uses. It's not the normal word for slave, but it's a particular word for a house slave. So imagine you're going over to someone else's house and, you know, the ancient Roman world. They got the, the big house and they got the servants and you're going over for dinner and the servants are doing everything, setting up and serving the food. And you start dressing down one of the servants for something that he's done wrong. And the master of the house looks over at you and is like, my servant, you shut up. If my servant needs correction, I'll correct my servant. Right? You're the guest in my house. Trust me to handle the affairs of my house. That's what he's saying here. Who are you to judge the servant of another? How rude to go to someone else's house and start criticizing the servants that belong to someone else. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. What does it matter what you think of that servant? What matters is what does the master think of that servant? And notice the principle here at the end of the verse. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able. You look at a Christian who's weak in faith and you think, not much hope for that guy. The Lord is able. The Lord worked with you. He was patient with you. He brought you along. Is he not going to do that for the other of his servants? Is God not faithful to every one of his servants to love them and lead them and sanctify them and guide them into all the truth? Is that your job? Is that your responsibility to guide people into all the truth? Or is that the Holy Spirit's job? Now, you're a servant. You've got a role to play. You've got to do what God tells you to do. But don't start taking on responsibilities that are not yours. And that would be judging and condemning your weak brother. So if you do those things, if you welcome whom God welcomes and you recognize that God is the one who's going to judge and you believe the best about other people and you trust in God's power to sanctify his servants, the church will enjoy unity. Unity, unity, unity. That's what we preach here.
Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, I thank you for the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. It is a manifestation of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Thank you for the inspiration of scriptures by which the Good Shepherd guides us and leads us into all the truth. Lord, we pray that we would learn from Paul when to confront, when to rebuke, when to correct, and that we would learn from the Apostle Paul when to accept and when to welcome, when to encourage. Lord God, may we be well-rounded, wise in all things, as we become more and more like Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray this. Amen.